Well, good morning. Um, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Will, and I have a chance and uh, the opportunity to be on the team here at Grace, and we are excited that you are here to worship with us this morning. We are in the middle of a sermon series that we have entitled Real Life, Real Pain. Uh, we understand that life can be really hard, and often it leads to some really deep pain and really deep hurt, and the church needs to be a place well, people can bring that hurt and bring that pain because we deeply believe not to be cheesy about it, but that like Jesus is the answer and not always in the sense of like, yeah, go Jesus. And you just got to be happy and joyful because sometimes there's a lot of pain and hurt that life brings with it. But we deeply believe that in Jesus, there is hope and there is life. There is healing and there is a warm embrace as he gives you a really big hug, regardless of what you've gone through, that there is forgiveness of whatever is in your past. And we need to be a place where, where people feel like they can come and bring that hurt and that pain. We need to, as a church, be able to develop some godly compassion so that people can do that and bring hurt and pain. We've put this kind of parental discussion advised warning label on our graphic because if you have... If you have students, if you have kids that are in here, we, we want you to be able to springboard into conversations with the topics that we are talking about. So we've been providing some resources on social media. Um, we've had a couple people reach out about, uh, you know, how can I talk about this thing or that thing? And we, we would love a chance to help you in navigating some of these conversations. And I really hope that your students are in here today because this topic that we're talking about this morning is at the root and the core of so much in our faith of this of what we experience in this world this this issue of idolatry is so pervasive in our world and in our context today and, and in the christian faith even and i'm sure as we talk about idolatry the first thing to come to your mind was the first part of that video right it's the those who are are bowing down and worshiping these these images made by human hands and made of stone or gold or wood or whatever it might be and that happens you know over in africa or south america or in history that it's it's been an issue somewhere else but i think what we're going to find out today is that it's something that we all wrestle with that we all struggle with that it's something that each and every one of us encounters on probably a more regular basis than we would like to admit. We were first introduced to this idea of idol worship in Exodus chapter 20 as God commands us not to in one of the Ten Commandments, two of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 verses 3 and 4 says, You shall not have, shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that in the waters under the earth. And this is the image that comes to mind, and throughout most of history, throughout the Old Testament, much of the New Testament, right, there is this truth that the the idols that people worshipped were man-made carved images in stone or in gold or in wood or, or in something else that that is a physical object that people would bow down to worship, but were to have no other gods besides the one true God. And often in our world today, that can take a lot of different shapes and look like a lot of different things. An idol is anything that takes priority over God. Uh, Tim Keller put it this way, that, that an idol is anything that is more important than God. R.C. Sproul, if we can put that quote on, on the screen there, says that it is the most common in our world, the most basic sin found in our world is that of idolatry. 
It is so pervasive in our world, and most of the time it goes without recognizing. You know, it's really easy to look out in the world and see that there are things in the world that other people value more than God. Our our world is full of things that people value more than God. It's out there, and it's prevalent, but it's hard sometimes to look in front of us and see the good things in our life that have taken priority over Jesus. In the survey that we did leading up to this series, the last question on there was one that I hope everyone checked that they wrestle with and struggle with. It said, there are things in my life that I prioritize over Jesus. And 71% of those in this church recognize that there are things in my life that we prioritize over Jesus. And so what I want to do is I just want to start with kind of some of the the basic things that we all might struggle with, we all might wrestle with, and at the end we're going to see that there's a commonality that we all really struggle with that's at the root cause of many of these and that all of us have to really deeply wrestle with. You know, we can look at the things of this world and see that there's more than just carved images that we wrestle with, that we have become God's that we idolize, that we prioritize more than, than God himself. Paul in the book of Colossians, remember the context that Paul is in in the Roman Empire. Think back to history class for just a moment. How many different Roman gods existed during this time period? But even Paul realized that it's not just other gods that we worshiped. And in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, he, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. And Paul widens this definition of idolatry, not just to images that we bow down and worship, but to maybe non-concrete, non-abstract concepts and ideas. And so that's what I think becomes the deepest idols that we wrestle with and we struggle with in our world today. And these bad ones, you know, know, sexual morality, we all see people in the world who who are struggling with that, who have made sex an idol that they're worshiping, that they're pursuing more than anything else. But what I want us to really strive to do this morning is not just think about people in this world, not just think about those outside of this building, not even to the person behind you or in front of you or next to you. Please don't look at anyone next to you or elbow them in the side when I talk about any of these. That's not going to be good for anybody. But I want to put up a mirror in front of myself. And help put up a mirror in front of you. My job here is not to make comments on the rest of the world. But my job here is to help us be able to stand before God with as clean of a conscience as we can. And so the things that I have chosen to point out as idols, there's a ton more. I, I could have picked a lot of things to talk about this morning when it comes to idols in our world. But I've chosen things that, that I wrestle with and that you're more likely to wrestle with. Because I'm talking to you guys here today. And there's a lot of really good things that can, can become idols. I think one of the easy ones to point to is work. We all know someone who works, you know, 100 hours a week. Even when they're not at work, they're working, email, phone calls, work. But you don't have to put in a lot of hours for work to become an idol. Just be real honest for a moment. I know so many pastors where work has become an idol. So many pastors where their relationship with God has become the work that they do at the church. So many pastors that if they were to stop 
working at a church and never step foot in church again as a, as a job or a career would deeply, deeply hurt because their identity is tied to what they do. And that happens to all of us if we're not careful, right? It doesn't mean that you have to put in 90 hours a week to, to have work as an idol. But if you were to stop doing your job tomorrow, would you be crushed? We live in a world today that emphasizes what you do as a career as part of your identity. Have you ever gone to a new place where you don't know people and you introduce myself? Hi, you introduce yourself. Hi, my name, my name's Will. Oh, nice to meet you, Will. What do you do? Right? It's like the first question people ask. Maybe it just rolls off your tongue. Hi, my, my name's Will. I'm a pastor. Right? It's just been a, become a part of your name and your identity and who you are. And when that happens, we have elevated work to a place that it doesn't need to be. Now, work is a great thing. God created the world. He gave Adam a job to name all the animals, right? He put him to work. God worked for six days, and he had to incorporate rest because we are created to work. And work can become an idol if we're not careful that it doesn't define who we are more than who Jesus defines who we are. Another way it's really easy to make other relationships idols. Maybe you're identified by your, your marriage, husband or wife, mother, father. Maybe kids have become an idol. Family has become an idol. And, and those are great things, right? Scripture speaks so much about the beautiful uh, symbolism between a husband and wife, Christ and the bride being the church, right? There is such great things about parenting and kids, but marriage is not an ultimate end goal. And some people may be single their entire life and they are not any less of a person because they don't get married, right? Having kids is not an ultimate end goal. A, a couple is not a family just because they don't have kids or, or not having kids does not mean you're missing out on life in, in any way because that is not what we are created to do. It's not what we're created for. And when we elevate marriage or parenting or kids, when we, when we protect our family at all costs and, and we always, you know, do the kids activities, no matter the cost, when we, when we emphasize parenting or kids or marriage to a degree that it was never supposed to be, then we have made it into an idol. It's never supposed to be that way. Parents, you have an amazing responsibility of discipling in your home when you have kids. It's not the job of the church. We're here to help, and we want to help. We enjoy helping, but that is not our job. Which leads me to another idol that sometimes we have created, and I want to be very careful with this. Because sometimes we've made an idol out of church. And again, church is a wonderful thing. There is great, great, power that scripture gives to the church. The church, I deeply believe, is God's chosen vehicle to draw the world to him. It's the community that we are supposed to have with believers. The church is amazing. But sometimes we've elevated the church to a place where it doesn't belong. And I think sometimes we've even elevated the church to a place where it doesn't belong by devaluing it. Right? If we look at the early church, we see that they gathered daily they, they met often together, and now we say to other people, hey, are you going to church tomorrow? And we have limited church to this time that we gather on Sunday mornings to, to a couple hours. And that means that then we can show up for church and go live, live, live our lives how we want to, and we don't have to actually be the church in the community. 
which is elevated than this time that we have together in this building and this place. And, oh, this is, this is church. This is church, so we have to make it a priority. People have to be here. We, we can't mess up this space. And not only do we have our traditions that we hold to so deeply, but, but we have elevated this, this thing of the church. Jesus warns the early church about this in Matthew chapter 6. He said, then when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. He says this about a couple other things. He goes into the temple at one point. He flips over tables because they have so destroyed what the temple is supposed to be. And we live in this world and in this culture where we elevate people on a stage. I'm literally elevated above you. We have developed this, this way of doing church where you get to sit there and be and sit and hear and listen. And hopefully something changes. Hopefully, hopefully something I say impacts you in a deep way or some of the worship impacts you in a deep way. But, but it's so easy to come and sit and not really participate. That's not what we see the picture of church being in the New Testament. Being very cautious, stepping out a little bit further. Sometimes I think we can actually take this book and make it into an idol. I love this book so deeply. I believe that the Word of God is the breath of God. It is inerrant, infallible, inspired. It is perfect. It is without error. I mean, it, it brings us truth. It is truth. But this is not God. And sometimes we, we take Scripture and we elevate it to a point where it doesn't need to be. Let me ask you a question. I'm sure you guys have seen the painting Mona Lisa, right? You're familiar with that picture. Uh, how much do you know about Lisa? Do you know anything about Lisa? She was a real person, right? Hopefully you know that it was, it was based on a real person. You might know what kind of dresses she likes and the hairstyle she prefers. Maybe you look into her eyes and and you, you know, the eyes are the window to the soul. So maybe you know something about her from, from the way that the painter portrays the eyes. Do you know anything about the painter? Maybe the brush strokes that he prefers, brush strokes that he likes, and they're the style of painting he prefers. But what do you really know about the painter? Mr. Brown over here has been painting a picture for us. I love it. That's awesome. Um... You can clearly see, if you can see this, I, ho I hope you, you, you all can see this, you, you can clearly see what he's painting up here. Jesus on the cross. I love the fact that you use, use charcoal to do this. We did not talk about that, but I love it because it helps illustrate another point here that like, you can't see the drops of blood and the red stained on the brown wood from his blood shed on the cross. You can't see any of the color in the crown of thorns pressed into his skull. There's so much detail missing. It's such a small picture here. And that's what scripture is intended to do, is to paint a picture. 
and we can clearly see from Scripture who God is. We can clearly see from Scripture who Jesus is. We clearly know that he is a holy God, that he is a God of love. He is a God of justice. We know who Jesus is because of this book, and the truth that this book contains is 100% truth. But how? How can a book contain the entirety of an omniscient God? How can my small human finite mind understand an infinite God? Right? We will not be able to understand God fully until we stand before him face to face. And even then, I wonder how much can a created understand the creator? I love this book. So many times we argue and we bicker and we open it up and we say, well, don't, don't you see this? It's clear. Scripture is clear on this thing or this other thing. It's right here. It's, it's black and white. Don't, don't you understand what it says here? It's so clear. And when we do that, we forget that this is supposed to paint a picture of who God is, a picture of who Jesus is. But it can't be the fourth person of the Trinity. It's not the fourth person of the Trinity. It's supposed to point us to God. And I know, I know that none of us in here ever struggle to go home and like, I hope that at least that no one's bowing down and worshiping and carved images. And I hope that nobody in here go, goes about their day and say, you know, I know God's word says X, but I really want to do Y. And so I'm going to do Y, even though I know God's word says X. But I think we do that. I know nobody in here has ever in their lifetime ever been sarcastic or been described as sarcastic, right? That is not anybody in here, he said very sarcastically. (laughs) Sarcasm is a second language to me. I love it. However, I come across in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now you might not think that, that sarcasm is corrupting talk. You might think that it is actually good for an occasion because some people, they, they might not need just be knocked down a peg or two. It is fit for the occasion. But it's not good for building up. It's not full of grace. And I don't know about you, but I've heard it said about me, and I've said it a few times. That's just will being will. That, that's just who I am. I, I'm just a sarcastic person. And any time that we defend a character trait in ourselves as just being who we are and not listening to what God is calling us to, We're saying, I know God's word says this, but I want to do something else, so I'm going to do something else. The root and the core of all these idolatries, that all these things that we struggle with, that we wrestle with, that we elevate to a place where they shouldn't be, is me. It's the self. This is how I see Jesus. This is how I understand God. This is how I interpret scripture. It's my marriage that I have to protect. It's my 
kid that I have to protect. It's my family that comes first. It's my comfort. It's my desire. It's my goal. It's my achievement. It is my this, my that. Fill in the blank. It is me that becomes the greatest idol that we worship. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is what we sign up for when we give our lives to Christ. This, this is what we sign up for, to die to self, to get rid of our selfish desires, and to live for Christ. If you're not yet a believer, you need to know that the really hard thing about putting your faith and trust in God is not necessarily everything that happens in the world attacking your faith. It certainly doesn't help, but that's the hard piece. Denying yourself, dying to self, getting rid of my selfish desires, that is the hard piece. And letting Christ live in me. Saying, I know, God, that you are calling me to something else, and my fleshly desire is wanting something else. And there is this battle that takes place. There is this battle that rages inside of us. Galatians chapter 5 or 17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are opposed to each other. So let me ask you this question. Can you off the top of your head name five times this week where you wanted to do one thing, but because of the spirit of God within you, there was a conflict Right, We all sin, we all fall short. There are times that we all cave to our fleshly desires, so you, you don't even have to let the Spirit win all the time. But there should be some conflict. There should be some conflict, and over time as we mature in our faith, there should be more times where the Spirit wins over the flesh. Okay, maybe five is a bit much. Maybe you don't remember what happened last Monday, yesterday. Yesterday. Was there any point yesterday where you felt... Your fleshly desire wanting one thing and the spirit within you of God wanting something else. And there being a conflict that you had to wrestle through. Because none of us are perfect. And all of us have a fleshly desire. All of us look out for self. All of us prioritize my thoughts above other people's. I'm right, you're wrong. Right? We, we all fall into that trap or are tempted to. So there should be times each and every day that we wrestle with the idol of self where we want to do one thing and the spirit of God within us says, no, hold up. I'm calling you to holiness. I'm calling you to godliness. I'm calling you to die to self, to let me live in you. Because that's what it means to follow Christ. It is this lifelong journey of being less like me and more like Jesus. And the best way of doing this, I believe, is exemplified in Jesus on the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How do we start to turn away from the idol of self to worshiping God? We empty ourselves through obedience to Christ. We empty ourselves of ourself and we start being obedient to Christ. And it's a journey. It's a process. It's hard. Jesus wept in the garden. Jesus wept in the garden so deeply and asked that if there was any way, any other way to accomplish the will of the Father that, that, that got you some other way. He did not want to go through with this. But he emptied himself of himself and his own desires and his own self-interest to be obedient to God to the point of death on a cross. This has to start becoming less about me, less about us, and more about God. I'm going to, uh, we're, we're going we're to pray in maybe a little bit of a different way this morning as we finish up. There's this uh, way of praying called hands down, hands up prayer, where we start with your hands down and you can rest them on your knees if you want to. And what we're going to do is we're going to empty, empty ourselves. We're going to think about everything else that is not God honoring in this moment that's in our hearts and our souls and our mind that's going through us. We're going, to, we're going to lay it down, all the sin that we might be carrying around, all the shame that we might be carrying around in this moment. We're, we're going to lay it down. We're going to empty it of ourselves, and then we're going to turn our, soul, our palms up so that we receive what God wants to tell us. Even from just a understanding the spirit of God, right? We, we, we realize that when we give our lives to Christ, when we're baptized, the spirit of God comes into our life. But how can the spirit of God come into our life and fill and dwell us if we've not first emptied us of us? If there's no room for the spirit to dwell and so what I want you to do is you're sitting there, go ahead and, and turn your palms upside down. Go ahead and put them on the ground and close your eyes. And I just want you to do a moment of self-evaluation. And in the silence that follows, think about and pray and ask God to bring to mind every, everything in you that is not of him. And let go of it. The selfishness as we were getting ready this morning. The pride as we were on our way to church. God, empty us of us. May we be aware of the things in our lives that are not of you. Lord, however painful it may be, may we let go of the earthly and fleshly desires within us.
so that you can fill us. Go ahead and turn your hands up. And let God fill your soul. Let the word of his, the truth of his word flow into you. You've been adopted into his family. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Co-heirs with Christ. Created in his image. Empowered by the Spirit. God, we praise you for the outpouring of your Spirit into our lives. For the gifts of the Spirit that you give us that cultivate fruit of love and patience and so much more. May we be filled with your spirit today and every day. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.